0: Let's turn now friends to the second portion we read. Mark chapter two. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days and was noised that he was in the house, and so on. This is a story of forgiveness and a story of healing. And in the minds of many people, the lines between these two concepts can be very blurred. Three evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this incident, so that itself marks it out as fairly significant. Yet, there are slight differences in what each of them recalled. For example, Matthew says nothing about the incident on the roof mentioned here in verse 4. Luke records in Luke chapter 5, he departed, this is the man, he departed to his own house glorifying God. But Luke fails to record all of them. Everybody present, according to verse 12 here, glorified God. Now, these are minor details. They're hardly worth mentioning. And the only reason I mention them is that it's a reminder to us that these evangelists, they were human authors. They were different one from another. They were all inspired but they were recording from a human standpoint. And I think we should remember that when we see differences like that in similar narratives in each of the Gospels. Now, in the context here, Jesus is in his adopted home or adopted hometown. Now, um, Matthew Puts it like this in Matthew chapter nine. He came into his own city. Now you would expect that to refer to Nazareth, perhaps, or Jerusalem, but it doesn't. It refers to Capernaum, and the reason for that is that he spent more time here than he actually did in Jerusalem or in Nazareth, for that matter. He used uh, Capernaum as a base for his ministry throughout Galilee. Hence, we have the comment here in verse 1, he entered Capernaum after some days and was noised about that he was in the house. Now, we assume that this was the house that he stayed in whilst he was in the town or small city or whatever Capernaum was. And many commentators uh, seem to agree that This was not Christ's own house. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, but rather that it was the house of the Apostle Peter. Now, certainly, this was the area Peter belonged to, and Peter was part of the fishing industry uh, at the Sea of Galilee. But in any case, the popularity of the Lord has already grown enormously, Verse two: Many were gathered, in so much that there was no room to receive them. Now, one of the interesting things about this story is the readiness of Jesus Christ to reach out to anyone and everyone. He wasn't biased in the least regarding who he reached out to, who he healed, and who. He forgave now this is very early on in his ministry, now, assuming Mark has put things in chronological order, and we believe he has Matthew, for example, uh hasn't yet been called. You can see his calling in verse fourteen. We didn't read down that far, so this is very early on in our Lord's ministry, but nevertheless, the people are cramming into the house. They're even spilling into the garden. I think that's a picture we have when we read the account from the three evangelists. Now, sadly, Jesus seemed to have attracted as many rogues and rascals as he did genuinely needy people. So present here are the sneaky scribes waiting to pounce on him. Verse 6, there were certain scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Now there's no prizes for guessing what they were reasoning. We'll come to that in a moment. Now what makes this story so significant is the link that Jesus makes between the healing and the forgiveness. Verse 9, which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk. Now, we would say that there is a ginormous gap between the forgiveness of sins and the physical healing of a person's body. We would say that these are two distinct and separate entities. But that's not what Jesus is hinting at here. So that is worth exploring a little. It certainly begs the question, is Jesus saying that forgiveness of sin and physical healing are identical? We know from other gospel accounts that many people were healed who were never spiritually cleansed. Let's consider then the context. It's very difficult, at least I find it very difficult, to map out our Lord's ministry. We know that it all occurred within a framework of three years from the time of his baptism at the River Jordan by John to the time of his death at the cross of Calvary. Yet events moved so fast. During those years, he himself traveled so widely, and he did so many things, that these four evangelists, they were struggling to piece it all together. Mark, you will have noticed, if you're familiar with chapter one of Mark, you will have noticed how he crammed so many things into that chapter in the ministry of our Lord. Now remember, We're at the beginning of the ministry. And in that first chapter, Mark records for us the appearance of John the Baptist, Jesus himself being baptized, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness of the devil, Jesus confronting demons, and Jesus healing who knows how many people. All of it crammed into that first chapter of Mark's gospel. Now, meanwhile, after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus used that, or at least coincided with that, that he made the decision to leave Jerusalem and to travel north up to Galilee. In chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, it's beyond question, my friends, that most of the people following Jesus, and I don't think I'm being cruel in saying this, Most of them were there for the drama. They were there for the drama. Now, perhaps that's understandable. They had never seen anybody like this. No two days were the same in the life of Jesus Christ. Every day brought a new experience, mostly of a dramatic type. If he wasn't fighting and defeating demons, he was performing impossible miracles. He was healing all kinds of sick and suffering men and women, old and young. So we can imagine the hope and the excitement and the joy of the citizens of Capernaum when they heard that Jesus had arrived amongst them. <coughs> Excuse me, the news spread fast. bodhisatt that uh, phrase in verse 1? It was noised about that he was in the house. I like that phrase. It was noised about. An equivalent phrase in our colloquial language would be it spread round the grapevine. He has come, he's in our midst. This miracle maker, this man that can heal any kind of illness, this man who declares he can forgive the sins of men and women and boys and girls, he's here. Whatever the physical and mental and psychological needs the people had, these were not the reasons why Jesus visited their town or city, whatever it was. That wasn't his main purpose in coming even to this earth. Certainly people did find his ministry exciting. As I said, they never saw anything like this. They never heard a preacher like this. But nevertheless, a healing ministry, however desperately the people needed a healing ministry, That was not on the top of Christ's agenda. This was, look at the end of verse 2. He preached the word unto them. That was the top of his agenda. That was his main mission in his ministry. Yes, many present in this house needed healing. Not all of them. Many of them would have. But every single one of them, my friends, needed to hear the gospel. Every single one of them needed to hear the word of God being preached to them. And Jesus could see clearly the great and varied needs of the people before him. Nevertheless. This was his priority to preach the word unto them. That, my friends, remains the priority of the Christian church in every age, in every generation, and it will be until the end of time. This is the uppermost task of the Christian church in this world to preach. The word of God to declare the gospel of redeeming grace to every man, woman, and child in every nation on earth. People come to church for many reasons, my friends. All of you have come for your own reasons this evening. And that's good. You couldn't be in a better place on a Sabbath morning or Sabbath evening than in the house of God. But whatever your reason for being here this evening, whatever your problem, whatever your issue, whatever your burden, here's what the church has been commissioned to set before you. Here's what I have been called to do. Preach the gospel of redeeming grace. Reach the word to you, child and adult alike, present in the house of God this evening. Jesus put this in perfect order in the Sermon on the Mount when he spoke these words. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things. These are the things you're concerned about. These burdens you have. These issues that are weighing you down. All these things will be added unto you in God's good pleasure. He preached the word unto them. Then me look secondly at the interruption to his preaching. Of the extent of our Lord's knowledge... When he lived on earth is hard to determine at times. We know that he wasn't omniscient. that's the word we use for all knowing. God and God alone knows everything. There is absolutely nothing that God doesn't know. be it good, be it evil, He knows it all, and that's what we call. Omniscience. Now, as the second person of the Trinity, Christ was omniscient. However, part of his humiliation for the 33 years he was on the earth was that divine features such as omniscience were suspended throughout those 33 years. How do we know this? He tells us himself. When he was asked on one occasion about the end of the world, when is it going to be? They asked him. This is the response he gave. This is in chapter 13 of this gospel, verse 32. Of that hour knoweth no man, not the angels in heaven, neither the sun, but the father only so our lord had a limited mind every human being has a limited mind you could be the greatest genius that ever lived and there have been many many geniuses if that is a proper word but nevertheless their minds are limited by virtue of being human, by virtue of being created. Jesus was limited in his mind. He had a human mind. So he didn't know everything. Now, having said all of that, the Holy Spirit did reveal to Jesus... Everything and anything that he couldn't ordinarily know with his human mind that was relevant to his ministry on earth. So as he preached in this house, it's really hard to say how aware he was of the activity going on outside. How much did he know of these four men who were presently approaching the house, carrying a fifth man lying on a stretcher. How much did Christ know about that? I'm not sure. Did the Holy Spirit reveal it to him? Perhaps. Maybe. I'm just not sure. In any case, we read of these four men, and they're carrying the stretcher, verse verse 3, There came unto him bringing one sick of a palsy, which was born of four. Now, evidently, These four men carrying the stretcher, they were Christians. They were men of faith. Look at verse 5. Jesus saw their faith. So they were Christian men. And in many ways, they're unsung heroes of the story. And I say that because anyone leading others to Christ, they are heroes. They deserve credit. They don't deserve glory, but they deserve credit. If you have ever led anyone to Jesus Christ, you don't deserve any glory, but you deserve credit for it. You couldn't do anything better in your life than lead someone to Christ. And in this instance, as you can see, these four men went the extra mile. Because approaching the house, they realized that entry into the house was impossible. Now, I want to pause here for a little to describe this house for you. You see, Capernaum was a fairly well-to-do town or small city. It was the hub of a very large fishing industry. So the people here were much better off than people living out in the country. And that means that they could afford to build better houses. And the houses were, in fact, we know this from historical sources, their houses were quite sturdily built. They were usually one story with a flat roof. And the roof itself, the roof material consisted of roof beams going across in one direction, and then lengths of much narrower wood going across the other direction, and this was again talked with tightly packed thatch, what we would call thatch. Now there that are, I'm glad to see, some present here this evening who are older than myself, who will remember very well watching the old potters thatching the blackhouse. Even I sadly can remember some of that. That's the kind of roof this was, it was a a thatched roof packed very, very tightly. Now, many of these houses also had either a ladder or a stair on the outside wall because they regularly accessed the roof, especially at night to cool themselves. This was a very humid, warm climate. So at night, they would often go up the roof to cool down. So those men, four men, they carried the stretcher up the stairs onto the roof. And next we read in verse four, they uncovered the roof. In other words, they removed some bundles of thatch and they pushed aside some of these timbers. Now, no doubt, to the astonishment of those who were down below, they began lowering the stretcher on ropes. The end of verse 4. They let down the bed wherein the sick of a palsy lay. What a strange sight. What on earth were they thinking? What was Jesus himself thinking? Watching all this commotion over his head. But I'll tell you this, my friends. These were true friends. These were true friends. They didn't allow anything to prevent their handicapped friend coming to Christ. They never even paused to ask the order, come and make a hole in your roof. They weren't concerned with the reaction of the order. This is a vivid case of faith moving mountains. A vivid case of men burdened with their unconverted friend. Jesus saw it for what it was. He saw their faith. And these men knew their efforts would not be in vain. It's a real case of practical Christianity. I like the way James defines practical Christianity for us. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What a wonderful definition of practical christianity however what did those who are present here think especially those four friends when jesus didn't immediately perform the usual miracle instead of saying to him take up your bed and walk as he had said to others he said verse five son thy sins be forgiven thee Everybody who saw this happening, I'm quite sure they felt heart sorry for this paralyzed man. A man who hadn't moved for who knows how long. But when Jesus saw him, he saw a far greater problem than paralysis. You see, my friends, whatever effect paralyzed limbs had on this man... It couldn't condemn him to hell, but a sin could. Paralyzed limbs could never condemn him to hell, but a sin could. So Jesus focused on his greater handicap. Do you realize that you may very well? Have a greater handicap and a greater burden than the things that are foreground of your mind this evening? Oh. Whatever the issue, my friend, whatever the problem, whatever the burden you have today, remember if it's physical, mental, temporal, none of that will condemn you to hell. But without forgiveness for your sin, you will end up in hell. So you need to address that problem if you haven't already done so here this evening. This was the primary focus of our Lord's preaching. His very first sermon, the very first words that came out of his mouth when he began preaching. Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent. Deal with your sin. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you done that? Boys and girls? Ladies and gentlemen? Have you done that? Have you dealt with the greatest problem in your life? Do you make sure that you have your priorities in order? Don't let the issues of this world Don't let issues of health, physical health, usurp what ought to be on the top of your priority list and the top of your agenda. Deal with your sin. Because that's the only thing, my friends, that will condemn you to hell. And every encouragement is given to you to repent. Because this book. The book you have in front of you, it's full of promises, full of encouragements to cast yourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let me move on to look at the words of our Lord to the scribes, verse 9. Which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or arise take up thy bed and walk but when the scribes heard jesus forgiving this man they immediately questioned his authority but they did so secretly verse 6 they reasoned in their hearts they reasoned in their hearts they reasoned in here in the mind the imagination They were questioning God. They were rejecting Christ. How many people are in this church tonight doing precisely that? How many of you are already blocking out the words of this sermon in your heart, in your mind? Well, let me tell you this, my friends. I can't see that. I don't know if that is true or not, but he does. He does. Look at it here. Why, Jesus says, looking at them, why reason ye things, these things in your heart? The searcher of men's hearts can read you like a book. You can hide nothing from him. Whatever you can hide from me. And that's when Jesus put them on the horns of a dilemma. Clever church leaders they may have been, but their reasoning was perverse. And any thought process, my friends, that defies biblical logic is perverse. So during his ministry, on three occasions at least that I can think of, Jesus put men on the horns of a dilemma by posing questions they couldn't answer. The first one, I'm just going to mention them in a word, and the first one was, uh, by the way, when he posed these questions, it didn't matter how the recipients answered him, they were going to condemn themselves this way or that way. Watch it. The first time was when the scribes and Pharisees questioned his authority, the authority of his ministry. And he answered them by pleading the testimony of John the Baptist regarding his messiahship. This is in Matthew 21, verse 25. And he said to them, the baptism of John, whence was it? Or where did it come from? Was it from heaven? Or was it from men? they immediately realized that whichever way they answered that question, they were going to condemn themselves. Because if they said from heaven, they had to believe John the Baptist's testimony regarding Jesus as the Messiah. If they said of men, then they're going to say John the Baptist is a liar. They knew they couldn't do that because John the Baptist was a favorite prophet of that era, they were on the horns of a dilemma. The second occasion it is was when Jesus challenged the Pharisees regarding his own identity. This is in Matthew twenty-two, verse forty-two. "What think ye of Christ?" he said. "Whose son is he?" They took the bait immediately, because they were they were clever. They answered, "The son of David." Then Jesus quoted, in fact, the psalm we were thinking about a little this morning, in psalm 110. He said to them, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. Then came the impossible question. If David called him Lord, how is he then his son? In other words, is he his son or is he his Lord? The only way that the uh, question could be answered, the only way he could be both, Son and Lord, is if Messiah was both divine and human. A claim Jesus had made on many occasions. Again, they're on the horns of a dilemma. They can't answer, because if they answer, they're going to condemn themselves. Here's a third occasion. In the story, which is easier to say, "Thy sins be forgiven," or arise, take up thy bed and walk? It's an impossible question to uh, to answer without acknowledging that Christ is the Messiah. So he declares to them. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way. In other words, if he had the sovereign power to speak to a man who was obviously and evidently paralyzed and say, stand up and walk, then... Surely, he must have the power and the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. Because this power that made this man walk is a power that comes from an high. No one else on earth could speak to that man in that way. No one else on earth could command a paralyzed man to stand up and walk. Only God. And if he's God... Then he has every right to forgive sins. They were on the horns of a dilemma. Hence John, the apostle, concluded his gospel, declaring the purpose of all Christ's activities on this earth. These, he said or wrote, are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And build up believing that you might have life through his name. That's the promise to you here this evening. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. With your whole heart, soul and mind. You will have life through his name. So the healing ministry of our Lord helped multitudes of people, but it was never about the problems, issues, handicaps of various types. It was about deeper spiritual realities, plaguing all of mankind, plaguing all of you here this evening. And as I said, my friends, there is no greater problem in your life this evening, whoever you are, child or adult. Than sin. For in all the gospel stories of sick, deceased, and handicapped people, here is the root cause of it all. Sin. Now, your granny may not have developed Alzheimer's due to her personal sin. Your father may not have cancer due to his personal sin. Your sister may not have lost her baby due to her personal sin. But nevertheless, my friends, if sin had not entered the human story, none of these tragedies would be in the experience of humanity. So when Jesus looked at this man. On the stre- on the stretcher. His tragedy wasn't that he was paralyzed. His tragedy. Was that he wasn't. Walking with God. Hence the true miracle. Of grace here. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Arise. Take up thy bed and walk. And the implication is. Walk with God. And little wonder Mark records in verse 12. They were all amazed. And glorify God saying. We never saw it. In this fashion. And that sums up my friends. Our greatest need. In this life. The grace that enables us. To do two things. To set out in life. Forgiven. Of God. And furthermore. Thereby. Walk with God. Through thick and thin. Through joy and sorrow. All the way to glory. Only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will secure for you these blessings and these privileges. And then you too can be filled with sheer wonder at the mercy and love and grace of our wonderful, amazing Savior. Taste, my friends. And see that God is good. You're never too old to do it. You're never too young to do it. Do it this very evening. That what Jesus did for this man. He can do for you. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God we bless thee. For the riches of thy word for its teaching and instruction and help us, Lord, to have an appetite for it and to be always found searching the Scriptures, for in that Scripture we shall find the key to eternal life through Jesus Christ, O Lord. Bless each one of us according to our need, remember us in mercy, and take us to our respective homes in safety. For Jesus' sake, amen.